7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first generation when Crinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then you can go a little bit, uh, a little bit past that to Hebrews 1, just verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. God, we are completely dependent on you. God, we don't like being a dependent people. We like being a people who can stand tall in our own confidence and our own abilities. And yet, God, this text faces us, tells us just how dependent we are for our very breath. God, I pray that as we consider this, as we ask, what child is this from Luke 2, as we look at Hebrews 1, as we consider redemptive history, that we would see Christ. Yet, God, we would walk away seeing more and more of our need of you and more and more in awe of a Savior who came into our mess, whom we celebrate now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so this song, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Obviously, What Child Is This? One of my favorite songs. And the reason why I like it is it asks a question that everyone on the planet in all of history has to answer. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you talk to a Christian or an atheist, even a non-believer, they would all say, you got to at least answer this question. Who is Jesus? He's too big. He's in, in, in history to not have considered that. And so that song, this Christmas song, What Child Is This?, does a nice job of kind of presenting the question to us of, hey, in Luke 2, when you read this, who do you think he is? And then Hebrews 1 answers this, and it answers this in a way that I kind of thought of. So sometimes in movies, um, especially I think like kid Disney movies, if you're familiar, sometimes like they zero in on a book, right? Just like a big, you know, kind of like fairy tale book, and it starts off long ago, you know, once upon a time, and then they introduce a character. Um, well, this would be like what Hebrews 1 does would be kind of as if like you started to see a movie that did that, and then the next page was, and then the prince rescued the, the girl, the damsel in distress, and all the wrong became right, and they lived happily ever after, right? And then the movie was done like a minute and a half after it opened. We haven't seen a movie do that, and yet our text does this. Hebrews 1 introduces 
right? Saying long ago and many times, and, and it's this big kind of summary of everything that's happened so far in redemptive history. But then it kind of just closes it and says, God has spoken, God's done this, and now God's spoken by his son, and this is where his son is and what he did, right? And so for our text, our text answers, what child is this? But it actually kind of goes one step further of what I wanted to present to you this morning, that we are not just to ask, what child is this, or answer that, but we need to answer, why do I need him? And I think Hebrews 1 does a great job of saying, hey, here's who this is, right? And we haven't, we've, again, we've sang about that. You've heard it preached from the pulpit. Worship, if you've come here, we've answered that, who is this? And we've also answered, why do we need him? But our hearts need this reminder each and every Sunday of why you need this child that we sing about. And so that's where our points are going to come from. If you're a note taker, you've got three points. Um, why we need him, first, because of what God says. Second, because of what Christ did. And then thirdly, because of what Christ is doing. So first, why we need him based on what God says. Second, because of what Christ did. And then third, what Christ is doing. So first, what God says. Notice that from uh, two times in this passage, it says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke. That's right off the bat. I want you to hear that you have a God who speaks right? That you have a God who communicates to his people. You don't have to, um, we don't have time to go throughout all of scripture and talk about all the ways that God has spoken, but we know that in creation, right? That God, what happened? God spoke and things came into existence. But then there's this idea of that God speaks, but then that God has spoken by his son. And this subject of God speaking kind of comes out in two ways in our text. First, that it communicates the grand plan of redemption for us. Communicates the grand plan of redemption. You know, in Genesis 1 through 3, after creating man, here's what God said, right? You've heard this a hundred times. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is, is speaking here, shows a loving father by warning of the possible danger, right? And as we know, we know what happens next, that we, we fell in Adam as he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then what do you see right after that? This is sometimes easy to miss, but right after that, what does it say? It says God speaks again. And if you remember, what does God say? But God says, where are you? This is, this is the first sort of note, the first glimpse of, of God's redemptive plan in history, and that immediately after we sin, what does God do? He locates his lost children. And what heavenly father, what father in general wouldn't locate when a child is lost, right? What do you do when you, you lose a child? I, I thought of this. Um, I won't call out which one of my daughters this happened to, but if you know my daughters, you can probably guess which one would hide from us. Um, but about like six months ago, we're in Chick-fil-A, um, and we had that like two minutes where we couldn't find one of them. Now, you're probably thinking like, hey, Chick-fil-A is probably like the safest place to lose a kid, right? Um, but still, there's that like two minutes that's just terrifying of like even kind of logically knowing, hey, like she's here, right? We just, we, you know, we're, we're checking the bathrooms. We don't know, but it's the most like terrifying two minutes, 
that a parent can go through, right? And what do we do as parents? We don't say, well, that was fun while it lasted. Not sure where she is, right? No, we, we, we say, where are you? We call out. We find them. We look, and then you know the rest of the story that we understand where Adam and Eve's sin actually took them, right? And God explains the consequences that they needed God to speak, not only to locate them, but to explain what their reality was. But even here with God speaking, He actually does it in a way that points to a Savior, right? You've heard this in Genesis 3. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That he is third-person masculine, right? In the text saying that he will bruise your heel, that Christ will get a bruise on the cross, but it will not be the final blow. That the final blow is Satan's to receive when Christ crushes the head of Satan. And then all throughout Scripture, we have God speaking to us, communicating his plan of redemption for us. The rest of Hebrews goes into this in detail. Then notice the text says that he spoke long ago in many ways to our fathers. Our fathers would have been the, the Jewish patriarchs, the leaders, and that God spoke to them by the prophets. And then in prophets, it actually doesn't just mean the prophetic books, but actually means uh, the writings of the narrative books as well. So Genesis, Exodus, that God has spoken to us through all those, and his speaking is done in a way to communicate his plan of redemption. And it's done in different ways, right? Again, we don't have time to go through, but we see Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, God speaking, Elijah in a still small voice in 1 Kings, Isaiah in a vision in the temple, Isaiah 6. All these ways of God communicating, but perhaps one of the most significant is that God communicates to us through a covenant. When God spoke and communicated, he spoke through covenants, communicating what this is going to look like. And covenants um, were arranged between a greater party and a less greater party, right? And so in this case, between God and man. Uh, great pastor, theologian, O. Palmer Robertson, has probably one of the most um, popular descriptions of what a covenant is, because it's very simple in his definition. He says, a bond in blood that is sovereignly administered. It's a committed relationship with agreements, and if those agreements are kept, there's blessings, and if those agreements are not kept, there's curses, right? And so we don't have time to go through all Scripture and look at this, but as you know, Israel epically failed at this. That actually, I tried to actually go through, I even tried to Google, to be honest, like how many times did Old Testament Israel, like, break God's laws? And it was too big, even Google thought it was too big of a task to do, so I could not come up with it. Um, any students who are home on break, you're done with college, it's my challenge to you, for me. Go ahead and go out to the Old Testament and find out how many times it's brought up that Old Testament Israel broke the commandments, broke God's covenant. But all throughout the Old Testament, even though we see constantly man dishonoring God, breaking this law, right? All throughout there, you have a consistent theme that God still speaks. You have highlighted that God, even though man is unfaithful in our covenant, that God is going to be faithful, that God is going to be steadfast, except, you might know where this is going, then there's 400 years of silence. There's 400 years between the book of Malachi, and the opening of the New Testament, where we actually have no record of prophetic writings. 
We don't have anything between that time period where God spoke to His people. It's a dividing point in history. But the reason for it is that the next time that God speaks, it's actually where this text is talking about, right? He says, but in these last days that we're in, He has spoken to us by His Son. He has spoken to us once and for all by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And in verses 1 and 2, there's this big contrast uh, with several different things. You've got the time of revelation was long ago, and then you have the time uh, that we're in now, right? Then you've got the recipients of that revelation. You have the, the fathers of the faith, and now you have we are the recipients of this revelation. And then lastly, you have the giving of that revelation in long ago in those days in verse 1 was the prophets, and now the one giving that revelation is God's Son. So, why is this significant? Because this time when God spoke, He did it in a way that showed us fully who He was. Look at the verse. It says, right after it says, this is, this is God's Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That everything we need to know about God the Father, we see in the Son. God is saying the Old Testament started to reveal what I'm like, right? Started to communicate, this is my character, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. And yet in Christ, we see the full picture of God on display. And then he says within the covenants that there's going to be no more additions, right? That within Christ's coming, that that is going to be the final revelation of this redemptive plan and what it looks like. That is the most clear picture that you can have. So I thought about this. Um, I kind of, I don't know if I ever officially agreed to it, but like as Steph and I have talked throughout marriage, like the one thing that I agreed that we wouldn't do is build a house. I don't remember when, I don't know, maybe it was early on, maybe even dating. She just, she was like, I don't want to build a house. I had kind of thought about it one day. After renovating a house, I no longer want to build a house. So we, about a, a year and a half ago, took on a renovation for our house. And as you think about, like, uh, building a house or big renovations, you've got the beginning stages of it, right? Where if you have a contractor, you maybe have some drawings, you talk about it. Uh, maybe the contractor's, like, doing the walkthrough with you. And, and I'm, like, super visual. So, like, when they're doing that, like, it, it just doesn't help me. But he's saying, yeah, this wall will be gone. We'll put windows here, this flooring, and everything, Right? And then as you go throughout the process, you start to know kind of more and more about it. They send you maybe pictures of, hey, this is what the flooring that I mentioned is going to look like. And hey, maybe this is a sample of some of the paint colors. And then you have the final product, right, where you're walking through and you, and you think, oh, this is what he was talking about. And actually, one of the nice things for us is having a contractor. So I debated for about maybe five minutes when we bought the house, maybe I could be my contractor, right? Maybe I could do this. The ones who are laughing right now, if you don't know, are the ones who know me well enough to know that would be a huge mistake, right? So I remember walking throughout the house and you see just all like the electrical and like everything and, and, and how it all had to do the timing. And I remember walking through and even though, you know, it's always a hard process, I remember thinking, I'm so glad that we had a contractor, right? And actually, within this text, next, we see why we need Christ. 
We see why we needed him to be the one to show us fully on display why it had to be him all along to bring this revelation. And it's in verse 2b. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is sort of where, where the rubber meets the road for the, le- the readers of this letter, that they believe, they need to believe that God speaking by his son is better than all of the other previous ways that God spoke. That there's something about the way that God is speaking and what he chose to do through his son that the writer of Hebrews is saying, trust me, this is so much better. And actually, it's found right there in verse 2 in that word purification. Purification, if you're a Jewish audience, there was several familiar uh, terms with this. First, it had to do with the work of the priests, right? Uh, They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of people. Uh, Then they're also able to teach the law from Leviticus, and, and priests would come and determine whether a person was sick or healthy, And in light of this, imagine what it must have been like for for the readers of this to see that word purification where previously it was a really complicated part, that they weren't used to seeing it just kind of go as a quick drop of, oh yeah, someone's going to make purification. If If you're them, if you're this audience, you're thinking, whoa, 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 that's a big process. There were requirements there were, there were stipulations. There, there's, there's whole books that explain how it is that we actually have to think about the priesthood, right, in this whole system. As I thought about this, of what it would look like, um, I'm someone where I, I actually used to do my taxes, my own taxes. Um, inevitably, the first few years, like, I always messed them up. Or um, I remember doing them, and I remember thinking, like, I just don't know what to do, and I'd have to, like, bring someone in to help me. I'm just not, that's, my brain doesn't work that way. And I remember the first year that I was finally just, in my mind, smartened up and just brought in an accountant, right? You get to, you gather all your tax forms, your your W-2s or, say, I don't even know what I have. I have W-4s or 2s. I don't know. But I gathered everything, right? You just put it in an envelope. And I remember putting my accountant's name on it and I just sent it away. And sure, he had some questions, but what used to be so complicated, every tax season, I would dread, I would think, oh, I don't know what to do. Now, I just put it all in an envelope, and I say, here, you deal with it. And guess what? That's what the writer is doing. He's saying this word purification, I know that in your context that it was complicated, but it is so much more simple, that it really is this simple. And actually, later on in the book of Hebrews, is really one big book. This is where I wish we could do, I'm sure we've done it before, but I'm not doing a whole series in Hebrews. But if we were, we would talk about how this is one unraveling plan of the writer of Hebrews saying, it really is this simple. And Hebrews 7:11 captures that. It says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This is quite simply the gospel, that when God in former ways had to communicate to us where our sin took us, that he, as a loving father, said, hey, you are in a dark place because of what just happened. 
And then he gave us different covenant administrations of saying, okay, but I'm not going to leave you there. I have a plan, and so I'm going to speak in many former ways. I'm going to do all these things to communicate to you the grand plan of redemption. And that now it says that he's continuing, that he's going to intercede for you. So what does this word purification mean for your salvation? This, to me, is, is like the, the mic drop of the whole text. Ready? If you have your text, I want you to like look at it. Okay, in that part, it says, he is the radiance. He, after making purifications, ready? Three words. He sat down. He sat down. I want you to think about why is it that a king would sit down? He sits down when the work is done. And so before we move on, we, we, we can't go here unless you know and you fully realize that in terms of your salvation, Jesus is sitting down. That it's not a coincidence that it says, after making purifications for sins, that he sat down. I imagine this was a difficult concept for them reading this, that it was that simple that, that the sacrifice, that the giver of the sacrifice could sit down. That it was a once and for all sacrifice. And sometimes when I read what it was like, what Old Testament Israel was like, I think, man, we are still like them. Man, sometimes I bet that we look at this simple offering of Christ as a once and for all sacrifice, and we think, is that really it? Like, is that really enough to fully take care of all my sins? Is Jesus enough? It's almost as if we think that, that Jesus made purifications for sins, he, and now he's sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, and then he, and he looks and he's like, man, I didn't know Tim Pitzer was going to be this bad. I better get up. I better go to the cross again. I better spill more blood. That is not how it works. The text simply says that he sat down. So I want to ask this. Does this still shock you? Sometimes when I'm teaching, especially use this in youth ministry, that there are certain concepts, there's certain things that we hear in church that I think we kind of go on like spiritual autopilot with, right? So last week, actually in youth group, I taught on uh, the Lord's Prayer, one that, that uh, pretty much all the students had memorized, that we know and say often, right? But then sometimes there's that danger that that can kind of just be lost on us, those words. And, and I'm, I'm sure this phrase, that Jesus died for your sins, hopefully is nothing new to you, right? But it's also a phrase that if you've gone to church more than once, you've heard all throughout that Jesus died for your sins. So does it still shock you? And if it doesn't, there might be two things going on real briefly. First, it's that possibly you don't see yourself as that sinful, that when you see that Jesus made purifications for your sins, maybe you think, well, how much purification was needed, right? So this is sort of like occasionally when I talk to, to students, you hear this, not a lot actually. No, actually this scenario you never hear. Sometimes like there's, there's grading on a curve, but imagine, imagine if there was a test where like a lot of the class did awful on it, right? And then the teacher said, you know what, like, you guys did super bad on this. I'm just going to give you guys all 100s. Now, imagine that you are one who you already got a 96 on it, right? If that's you, then the gift of a perfect record is not going to shock you. 
And so as you look at this and consider, is that where you are? Have you looked and said, it's not shocking because I was doing pretty well? Or can you understand how far your sin took you? Or option two, if this doesn't shock you, maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you've been so ashamed of your sin that you don't think Christ had enough blood to spill in order to save you. And for you, I have a homework assignment that I promise is the easiest assignment you're ever going to be given, right? It's to memorize the three words. If you don't regularly memorize scripture, this is like, this is a a really good baby step. Memorize those three words that he sat down. Because he's sitting down because the work of salvation is done. Verses that speak to this, some of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so through him, our amen is spoken to the glory of God. And then Romans 15.8 says, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth, here it is, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. That promise is both that Christ will once and for all purify your sins and that he will see it through to completion, which leads to our final point. We need him because of the work that Christ is continuing to do in your life. As we think about this this last point, why do you need Christ? Not just because of what he's done, but because of what he is doing currently. And what is he doing? The answer is found in verse 3. You can look at it again. It says, after making purifications for sins, okay, that's what he's done. Here's what he's doing. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's continuing to intercede for you. He is constantly next to the Father, reminding the Father that we have his very righteousness. So his work in our justification is complete, but he doesn't just leave us there and say, good luck, right? Good luck. I worked in your life that one time when you were 7 or 10 or 15 or 35, whenever you believed, I worked and now I have the time off. No, Jesus says, I'm going to continue to work in your sanctification. What this means is that his finished work on the cross has secured his salvation. He will continue to work. And here's the thing. I think this is sometimes shocking to us. I can't remember who told me this once. I wish I could do it so I could quote him, but I just remember a pastor said it. The same grace that you received the moment you believed is the same grace that is available to you each and every day in your fight and battle with sin. Do you believe that? That, that you now don't get the JV, the backup grace, right? That, that God didn't bring in all the heavy artillery, uh, art- what's that word? Artillery, yeah, to save you and say, all right, well, now we just need to give Tim a little grace, right? No, God says, I'm going to continue to give you the power of the cross, not just for your justification, but as you continue to battle sin. And where I'm going to be is at the right hand of the Father that is going to continue to intercede for you. I thought about this. I was uh, counseling someone this past year and uh, who was just struggling with this battle uh, with a certain sin. And they were asking, you know, okay, how do I, like, how do I beat it? How do I have this victory over it? And the person said something that, that just broke my heart, but I think it's something that we can resonate with. And this person said, am I not having enough affection for God, and that's why I'm not able to ditch this sin? 
And they said it with tears through their eyes. If this is what you're feeling, I want you to hear this passage from Hebrews 9, 14 that gives us in this context of here's how we think of the battle, right? It said, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, don't miss. Yes, the part that's talking about our sanctification is where it says that he'll bring us to serve the living God. But right before that, it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without blemish. He was the perfect spotless lamb. And he was the priest and he was the sacrifice for the first time that he fully brought it to God. And what did that do that brought, that purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All of our battle with sin and living for Christ is only possible because Jesus has done this. What this does is that this actually brings, this removes the argument in the battle with our sin that there is more sacrifice needed from us, right? You know the lyrics, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far." and grace will lead me home. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the one that brings it to God. And so now in these final days that we read in our texts, that we read in Jeremiah 31 earlier, in these final days, they're lived differently because they're actually lived in response to what Christ has done. But the reality is, this is so often a, a conversation that that I have with, with friends in my marriage that we talk, and we just wish sanctification was overnight, right? We wish that that battle with sin, that, that, that we see how can we continue to fall, and we think, I should be farther along in it than I am now. This is why it's so important. In this battle with sin, as we serve the Lord, as our lives are a response to what Christ has done, that we hear this verse from 1 Peter 2.9. It says, now you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know the safest place to be in the world is actually in possession by God? I, I promise you that no matter what else happens this week, that's good for you. If all of a sudden the Dow goes up 3,000 points, if all of a sudden all your, your broken relationships get restored, if you get that job promotion, if whatever's been frustrating you all of a sudden goes away, there's actually no better news than what 1 Peter presents to us. That if you are in Christ, if this is you now, that you are a chosen people, you are actually a holy nation. How are you a holy nation? Because now, with the presentation of Christ, He is able to present you blameless. He is actually able to present you as perfect, as what all the sacrifices were trying to present. No, now Christ is the mediator of a better covenant because it is done perfectly, and it is done once and for all, and by it, God has spoken once and for all. That there will be no ongoing need of God, what is it going to look like? How are you going to bring a people back to yourself? 
I thought about this in the beginning where I mentioned with a where are you in Genesis when I've lost a child, not often, only once or twice. Where are you? Literally, one of the safest places to be is when you're, you find your child, right? And the difference is when I was, was looking for my children, I said, where are you? I actually didn't really know where the child was. Sometimes, I did this once like three months ago. Someone said, like, you didn't resolve that, like a kid fell and you all were like, what happened to your kid? We, we found our child. Like two minutes later, she was hiding up in the, the play place in Chick-fil-A, right? But at the time, I, I was saying, where are you? Because I literally didn't know where my child was. Well, guess what? When God says, where are you? He knows where you are. When he says, where are you, he knows what you've done. When he says, where are you, he knows the battles you're having. He knows what you're experiencing. And yet he still comes and says, where are you? Because you're my child. In your shame and your guilt, he still seeks you out. He still wants you to be free, to come, to be freed from darkness to light. So in, in conclusion, um, I've got kind of a guilty pleasure. I don't know if I've ever told someone this before, but I am a sucker for those soldier coming home videos, right? I can get super sidetracked in YouTube for like 20 minutes just watching these, uh, you know, the soldiers that will like dress up and then they go to their kids, you know, basketball game or, or class or whatever. And, uh, and then, you know, there's always that moment that is the most exciting part. It's actually... Uh, the most exciting part is not actually the beginning where the kid doesn't know, right? The most exciting part of this is actually when either the, the dad takes the mask off. And you've got that, that, that five seconds where I start to sob like a little baby because the mask is off and the son or daughter sees his father and runs because they recognize their dad. Well, this song, What Child Is This, kind of has, actually has that says, this, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud. What would happen when we actually answer, what child is this? He's my Savior. He's the purification of my sins, is we run. That word haste, haste means run. And what do you do? You run to bring him praise. You run to bring him worship. You run because you say, nothing else is satisfied in this broken and fallen world. And just like the, the readers of Hebrews, when they read this, should say, yes, nothing else has satisfied. The old covenant has not satisfied. It just gave me a hunger for what I'm craving. And now God has spoken in his son and saying, this is what is going to satisfy you. That in your shame, in your struggle with sin, this is my final word that is spoken for you, and he is sitting down. That he has fully made every purification that you need. And I would implore us as we end to echo the words that actually my kids have been singing for a year and a half. They sang it at Easter. They sang it this summer. Sometimes it's one of those things that I go on spiritual autopilot because I hear them singing all the time to their stuffed animals, and it struck me this week. And I thought, man, doesn't that describe what this process is? For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. 
That's your Savior. Let's pray.